Listen closely. There's an embedded message in this music. All right, there's the source. Now listen carefully for the message. Did you hear it, Wes? You know, I think I heard something. <laughs> yeah, a little. There is a little bit of a difference there. Um, there is data hiding in the 9.8 kilohertz to 10 kilohertz audio spectrum in that sample that we just played. Wow. You know, considering it sounds pretty decent, I think. Yeah, well, uh, one of the tricks they're doing is they're, they're analyzing the music, and then they're encoding data into the audible range of the music. So picture a moment, like transferring information via sound, as we all know, modems used to do, do that. Well, what if you could have smartphones that are always listening to the background music that's playing, like your Pixel 3 does? Oh, yes, it does. And it's only a little bit creepy. Now, what if you could transmit information in that music, like the coffee shop Wi-Fi password? Ah, oh, so you just step into the coffee shop. The music's been altered just a little bit to encode the password, say, and then your phone picks it up, registers, finds the network, hops on in your own life. Wes, this isn't just a theory. Why? It's a white paper, too. <laughs> Yeah, I thought this was really interesting, man. Um, obviously, there's so many other implications when you're just spewing this stuff out in the air and what your phone can pick up. But I thought it was a, a pretty interesting way of, uh, you know, encoding these these sorts of things that we all use on a daily basis uh, in, in our surrounding audio. And they pointed out, like, why use audio frequencies, right? Why not use a frequency that we can't hear? And basically, there's already, there's just a lot of speakers for the human audio range already. So you have speakers in the ceiling that are designed to pipe out music in that range at the mall. Yeah, you're not going to get um, fantastic data rates here. Real world data transfer would be around 200 bits a second. Um, so that's, I think, if I'm doing my math right, about 25 words per second. So a good Wi-Fi password, but that's about it. Yeah, something like an audio QR code. Yeah, an audio QR code is exactly what it would be. What could go wrong, Wes? Hello and welcome to Linux Unplugged episode 311. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. We have a great episode today. So not only are we going to get to some important community news, I've had a think recently about oh the community boy. news. So this is a slightly retuned community news, this edition. But Thomas Cameron is joining us on this week's episode. And if that name rings a bell, that's because back in episode 304, we talked about Texas Linux Fest, and a keynote that really made us think. Everyone on the team was impressed by this keynote, and that was the one that was given by Thomas Cameron, and uh, he joins us this week on the show. Hey there, Thomas. Hey, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the kind words. I appreciate it. No, really, uh, thank you for joining us. This is something that we've been wanting to do. We... Both Wes and I didn't didn't talk about it ahead of time, but on the way into the studio today, listened to your keynote again because we have a recording. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> uh, we just enjoyed it so much. So uh, thank you for making it. And uh, as we go through the community news here and stuff, please feel free to chime in. And then uh, after we get through this community news, uh, let's just uh, chat about some of the topics you raised in your keynote. We'll just kind of expand on them a little bit and things like that. Sounds good. All right. Well, before we get to that community news, I have to say time-appropriate greetings to that mumble room. Hello, virtual lug. Good hello. evening. Hello. 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 That's hello. a packed mumble room. And of course, Mr. Cheese Bacon's here. Hello, Cheese. Hey, how's it going, man? Hey, Cheesy. Good. Good. I'm really good. Just got back from uh, Montana. Decided to do something that I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do more often when I do a family trip because I took, I took the family to Montana. And then I thought, you know, when I get back, the week I get back, instead of just jumping right back into work, what if I kind of like ease oh, in a little bit? Oh, the ease in. Interesting. The ease in, you know, I slide in a little bit. So I Phase in, you might say. I booked a uh, campsite on a river in eastern Washington. I, I don't know. If that's I don't know if that's phasing in. That's I think that's just more vacation. <laughs> well, I'm in studio, aren't I? Uh, yes, you are. <laughs> I, I did the three hour commute in today just because Thomas is here. Seriously, if, if Thomas wasn't here, I would be like, ah, I'll do it remote. Ah, <laughs> screw it. <laughs> is that a river behind you? Chris? Yeah, that is the river. That that would have been Joe's. Like Joe, Joe would have contacted me like Chris. This river noise, I can't filter it out. <laughs> that's my Joe impression. It's very bad. Anyways. Um, Moving on, let's talk about these uh, Dropbox updates that people have been tweeting me saying, well, now Chris is going to switch back to Dropbox now that this news is out. Wrong. 
But it is good to see, nonetheless, Dropbox is adding back-end support for ZFS, EcryptFS, and XFS and ButterFS on Linux. Look at that. Didn't expect that to happen. Is it, I mean, is it like a little awkward? Have they said anything? Or is it just sort of people are noticing that the support's back? That. Yeah. Feels weird, right? Like, yeah. Are there changes in the justifications they gave for dropping it? No, it's just, it's just uh, changes in the release notes for a beta version. This is so late, really, if you think about it. Exactly, right, Brent? Is it's like it's too late. Like we've it was it was the last straw, wasn't it? It was by far the last straw. I mean, how many people just kind of said, All right, I'm out of here. See ya. You gave me a good reason to like work a little harder at finding a better solution. So I think they lost a lot of people. Well, and I'll tell you, one of the things about desktop Linux is sometimes we get the features last. And that can actually be, in some cases, a good thing, especially if you want a reliable workstation that is predictable. And on Windows and Mac OS, and you've got to imagine eventually this would land on Linux, Mm -hmm. but on Windows and Mac OS, things have gotten really bad in Dropbox Town. So Dropbox now uses over a half a gig of memory on Mac OS, and when you look in its frameworks folder in the in the application bundle, there's an entire Chromium web rendering engine in there. And they've implemented an electron-based file manager in Dropbox on Mac OS. Can you believe that? I mean, I knew it was I knew it was coming. I mean, it just it just had to be. I didn't think Dropbox would be the one to do it. I mean, Dropbox went from super lightweight cross-platform sync tool to the most bloated sync tool possible. Well, it's a whole service, Chris. It's not just about syncing anymore. I mean, I, well, one of the things that I was resistant about Nextcloud was it just felt like it was too much stuff besides file syncing. Right. You just wanted some files and to have them everywhere. I had a change of heart and I realized there was other things I could take advantage of, and then Nextcloud was a slam dunk. But now looking at this, I'm thinking, man, the trade-off's actually still there. Like it's, it's Dropbox is uh, it's too much with the price. If you want real storage, if you want more than three devices half a gig of memory just for their stupid Electron file yes. manager. And then and then the fact that Linux feels like a second or maybe even third class platform. Thomas, as our special, as our special guest here on the Unplugged program, uh, well, I'm curious what your sync solution is. Do you, do you have anything that syncs to the cloud? <laughs> um, I, I do. I do. My wife and I both have uh, backup routines. She's on a Windows laptop. I obviously am on a Linux system. Um, I use, I, I hate to say it, man, I'm, I'm sort of old fashioned. I have a, an rsync script that runs on my laptop that checks to see if it's docked at home. If it's docked at home, it syncs over to my file server. If that, you know, once it's done that, then that file server syncs to some cloud instances that I have. And my wife uses a commercial cloud storage solution. I don't even remember what it is. But uh, so, yeah, we do use cloud storage, definitely. But in both cases, um, it's not very sophisticated. Uh, you know, there's something nice about using rsync to move your data around because it's easier to observe, it's easier to understand, so you feel a little safer about your own data because it's a tool you can wrap your head around. Exactly. And when you're writing it, you know, you're writing your script and you're saying, I want this data to go over to this internal server versus, you know, this data, which absolutely has to go to the cloud immediately because it's, you know, very important and we don't want to lose it. It's like, I know exactly what the software is doing because I wrote it. Yeah, and I mean, you only have yourself to blame, which I'm used to doing <laughs> yes, that, you know, so yeah. that's, that's not so bad. <laughs> I actually like that. That's fine by me. I'm totally okay in that scenario. Now, are you using any kind of secret sauce to, for your laptop and R-Sync to figure out when you're on the homeland versus when you're like on a hotel Wi-Fi or something? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's just I, I do a couple of different things. I look to see if I'm in the right address range, and I use kind of an oddball address range for my home lab. And then I also check to see if the uh, slash Etsy slash resolve.conf is set up to do uh, to search on my home office domain home DNS yeah right and right. so yeah so if it is and if my host name is correct so I do a, a number of tests but yeah if I'm on the right network and uh, the host name that's been assigned is a host name that I recognize because I've got static DHCP reservations uh, and my resolve.conf says that I'm in the right search domain then it fires off the uh, rsync script that's a solid way to do it that is a really solid way to do it well and because I'm an idiot. It's great that it's hands free. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just let it go. That's yeah, right. Yeah. They check those conditions. If those conditions exist, then it runs. Yep. 
Yeah, that's nice. That's how you want your backups to be, really. I, I there's not there's absolutely nothing wrong with that setup. Um, it's similar to how I back up my photos now, so it's n- not quite. I don't have the I don't have the network detection stuff because uh, mine's just always here on the land. But mm-hmm. I like that. So, Thomas, I know you're a, you're a long time red hatter. If I recall from the keynote, you were certified in 1999, so <laughs> you've been around for a while. Yeah, yeah. My first uh, installation of Linux was back in, gosh, 90, 95, I think. It was the first version of uh, Slackware that supported the ADOT out format. Uh, oh, so, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, it's been a while. And then when I went to, actually, before I went to work at Red Hat, I was a Red Hat certified engineer on Red Hat Linux 6.1. And then while I worked at Red Hat, I was a, uh, uh, Red Hat Certified Architect Level 5, which means that I, I didn't just pass the tests to become an RHCA, but then I took five additional technical tests after that and passed all of those. So big old geek. And as uh, as we talk today, um, if memory serves, you are an Amazon Linux Solutions Architect, correct? Correct. Yes. I just left uh, Red Hat after almost 14 years, uh, about four months ago, and started with AWS, the Amazon Web Services. And uh, I get to play with Amazon Linux all day, every day, and it's a lot of fun. It's a whole lot of fun. Interesting. I'd like to talk more about that in a moment, because that's something... I got to be honest with you. We don't cover much on this show. Yeah. And Wes and I feel a little embarrassed about that because it's it's out there. A lot of people are using it and it's getting about zero yeah, coverage. We never here, bring so it up. Let's get to there in a moment. But I, I kind of want to take a, a little bit of a historical perspective on this next story with you. Sure. Um, so this week it was approved by the Fedora Technical Committee to discontinue shipping 32-bit ISOs. And they're also debating an additional additional, even further step. Oh, yeah. So they, they also started talking about when should they end 32-bit software repositories in general for mm-hmm. Fedora. So they will consider a late change proposal for Fedora 31. And as a result, there is now the No I-686 repositories proposal that was drafted where they would stop producing and distributing modular and everything I-686 repositories. And this 32-bit transition has just been one of the continuing meta stories of 2019. Mm -hmm. And I'm just really fascinated on your entire take on this bigger, the bigger picture here, the bigger story. So, you know, the the systems that run 32-bit architecture are becoming so few and so far between and frankly so specialized right usually we're talking about industrial machines or special special purpose machines um and fedora is at its heart meant to be a general purpose distribution and so i i kind of understand the logic behind saying look you know you you pretty much can't buy a 32-bit machine anymore. So we're not going to burn the effort and the engineering effort and, you know, all of the build systems and all of the storage and all of the, you know, all of the the, the overhead that comes with keeping 32-bit distributions alive for something that is really a niche sort of specialized uh, platform. So I kind of agree with them, honestly. Same with me. I I, I feel like uh, you need a couple of distributions to start pushing this forward uh, and Fedora is a great distribution for that kind of tech, pushing a new tech forward. Okay, so um, you know, I, you and I are both long timers. You've got more time on this than I do, and I'm curious to get your perspective on why, when Canonical announced something somewhat similar, mm-hmm. although um, uh, uh, in a different style, there was <laughs> a there was a pretty big outrage. In fact, a weekend of outrage that just where people were popping off for a weekend, uh, 60 different articles were written. Um, when this gets announced by Fedora, uh, there's like three articles and two of them were by Pharonix. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's with the tonal difference, do you think? Well, I, I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said they announced it differently. 
with with the Fedora project, it is a project and it is a represented project. And by that, I mean, there are folks from the community who are represented. There are, you know, over communication <laughs> with a lot of the development mailing lists. Uh, and so I think that the idea of doing away with 32-bit builds was socialized for a long time before the announcement was was sort of broadly broadcast, if that makes sense. And, uh, and, and I think that the way that it was communicated, and I think that the rationale behind it, kind of what we talked about just, you know, just a minute ago, um, I think that most folks out in Fedora land were like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Fedora is a forward looking distro. It's for, you know, bleeding edge, cool technologies. It's for as close to upstream as possible. And a lot of the stuff that's upstream just doesn't, you know, doesn't lend itself to 32 bits. So I think it was all in the way that it was communicated personally. A flip side uh, question to that then would be, do you think that inherently makes Fedora less of a uh, corporate desktop platform where Ubuntu LTS seems like you had companies like Valve and game developers mm-hmm. that were um, almost they were, they were dependent on it as a desktop platform where they don't seem to depend on Fedora as a desktop platform as much? Well, you know, look at... Having been in corporate IT, you and I both have have been in those environments where, you know, if somebody came to me and said, hey, we're going to we're just just going to upgrade every desktop in the place that, you know, does precision computing or CAD cam or whatever uh, every six months because the underlying distro revs every six months, I would be like. I'm either going to stab you or I'm going to open my veins. <laughs> Go mental. You know? Yeah. So, so Fedora is designed for sort of bleeding edge developers. Uh, it's a phenomenal desktop. I use Fedora on my, on my desktop at home and love it. Um, whereas LTS is absolutely designed to be a solid, less flashy, sexy, forward looking um, desktop that's going to last for a long time. And I totally get you know, why, why folks would use LTS uh, or Ubuntu LT- LTS as opposed to Fedora. Yeah. And that could be more appealing to developers from a, you know, a targeting standpoint, because sometimes projects can have a multi-year lifespan. Wimpy, I, I want to give you a chance to jump in here just because I know that this is a topic that's close to your heart. Uh, you see the reaction differences, the tone differences between Fedora's announcement and Ubuntu slash Canonical's announcement. What are your thoughts on that? I haven't actually seen the announcement from Fedora, so I can't comment on the differences as to how it was communicated. Can, if I could, I should take this moment to make clear that uh, the dropping the i six eighty the thirty two bit repositories and all that is is likely not to happen. It's a proposal. It's a proposal that is seeing significant pushback, but the dropping of the thirty two bit ISOs and things like that is very likely to happen. Um, right. Okay. All of which yeah. has been pretty much, um, I think, well received overall. I am not at all surprised to hear people not caring about the removal of the ISO images for 32-bit Intel platforms. I think for those people that need that kind of support, there are plenty of niche distros that cater to that use case, and it doesn't need the likes of you know Ubuntu and Fedora to cater to those individuals. There mm. are plenty of other places you can go because we're kind of getting into enthusiast territory now right these systems are getting old enough you know it won't be so long before they'll be retro and there'll be a slew of youtube channels about you know preserving their 32-bit intel systems (laughs) you know so let's let's leave that to the enthusiasts and you know the the retro computer lovers Mm -hmm. and let's leave the mainstream distributions to look to the horizon and uh you know march forward well said well said. How are things over in Ubuntu Mate land these days? Ubuntu Mate land? Uh, yes, very good. Um, I've spent some time recently uh, creating bespoke images for some more uh, ultra-mobile PC devices. Mm, I heard Ooh. a little bit about that on that their Ubuntu podcast recently. Yeah, so um, GPD uh, sent me an engineering sample of their gpd micro pc um that has been going through a crowdfunder and those devices are currently being shipped to their backers at the moment um and thanks to the collaboration from hands to goad at red hat uh kernel support for those devices is in the 5.2 kernel uh the 5.2 kernel landed in uh the 1910 development um 
branch of Ubuntu. So I put together an alpha release for that so that people that have got those devices and want some Linux rather than some Windows have got somewhere to go. That's great. And um, as we you know progress through the rest of the 1910 cycle, I'll produce a beta image and then a final, a final image for, for that device. That is, you know what? The, 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 there's something in five two, five three, and five four. I am excited about. No kidding. It's getting really good. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's let's take a moment and have Alex bring us down a little bit from the five two hype because there is a bug that is impacting those of us that are enjoying the KVM lifestyle these days. Yeah, uh, was it three oh eight or three oh nine? I forget where we did a VF, VFIO special episode. I ran into a bug this weekend where. On kernel 5.2.1, there is a K-mode exception not handled bug, and this manifests itself in your probably Windows guest as random blue screens of death, uh, or 3D apps might randomly crash, so you might be browsing a website using Chrome, and it will just keep crashing time after time after time. Now, this weekend, I'd uh, installed a new SSD, so I thought it was that for the longest time, um, so wasted the best part of my Saturday trying to fix this. Wait, so you you hit this bug at the same time you did a hardware upgrade? Yeah, well, when I when I rebooted my machine, it rebooted into kernel five dot two, and I hadn't noticed that that had also changed. So yeah, perfect storm. Ah oh, man, that is a nice rite of passage, though. That has definitely hit all of us. That's nice. Yeah, idiot tax. Um, it's a really simple fix. Just downgrade your kernel to something that is older than five. So for the moment, I've gone back in the AUR. I've gone back to Linux VFIO LTS, which is just an AUR package, which takes me back to 4.19. I don't necessarily think I need anything in 5.x for a while. So we'll, we'll find out soon enough. Is this going to impact me on Fedora? I'm on 30 right now, but I think I'm on kernel 5.1. Yeah, it could do. Hmm. Uh-oh. Crap. Yeah, there's another bug in uh, kernel 5.2 that you might bump into as well, and there's a regression in the way file systems are mounted that can cause some file systems to get deadlocked when they mount. (laughs) Oh, that sounds like tons of fun. Yeah, yeah, um, Lovely. No, actually, not tons of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Dang it. Uh, All right, so everybody hold out for kernel (laughs) 5.4. On an up note, um, while I've been playing around with these uh ultra ultra mobile pcs i got my i backed a crowdfunder for what's called a top joy falcon really tell me about this well that's an eight inch uh uh netbook style you know they're they're they're, these days they're called umpcs but you know we know them as netbooks from like a decade ago sure um and this one's a little bit bigger than the other ones i've got so the keyboard is decent and it's in a aluminium unibody design, uh, and it has an optical touch point and a touch screen. And because of the work I've done on other devices like this, when I had a look at the hardware enumeration, I was like, aha, this is the track point that uh, I've dealt with in the GPD Pocket 2. And this is the touch screen and the display device I've dealt with in the GPD Pocket 1. So by looking at the other devices I've worked on before, I was able to enable that device with a bespoke image in a couple of hours. So images for Ubuntu Mate 18.04 and 19 are on the website and backers of that crowdfunder are just receiving their devices at the moment so at the point at which new devices are available there is also a linux operating system all pre-configured ready for you to install well done sir well well done very nice and that relationship with gpd is developing now and i've got two other devices in the post on their way to me at the moment so engineering samples of upcoming devices that i'm looking forward to to be working on there seems to be clear interest in Ubuntu Mate on these devices, huh? Well, GPD have kind of, um, because I put the effort in, we've kind of become the de facto Linux that they, you know, they they speak to me. We're in email contact and they, I'm connected with their engineers, so I know what's going on with their device engineering. Um, but that was because I put the effort in and, they, and you know, some of the other community projects, because my work is just d- derived from the work of others. Um, who did community images for the original GPD Pocket. And that was really the device that, you know, kicked this whole, you know, movement off again. So I'm not really creating anything new, but I am actually, uh, you know, sustaining the effort because some of those other projects have fallen by the wayside. 
Right. So, you know, it's nice for me because all I want in return for a bit of effort is, um, you know, an engineering sample of the device. So I've now got like five or six of these things in the house and they're all quite good fun to play with. And that is an important part of the open source ecosystem, too, is making sure some of that stuff continues on. Um, well, that's great. So, uh, Wimpy, you joined us a bit in progress. Uh, Thomas, this is uh, Martin Wimpress. He's uh, an employee at Canonical, and he's the lead for Ubuntu Mate. Wimpy, Thomas uh, works at Amazon in the, their Linux area amongst uh, a long history of things, but he's currently in the uh, Amazon Linux team. Pleasure to meet you. And you, and I very much enjoyed your talk at Texas Linux Fest. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So um, it's great. It's great. I just feel like it's been forever. So Wimpy, it's great to have you here. Go, everybody, sure go, is. go listen to the Ubuntu podcast. Like if you've been listening to the show and you're like, I miss Wimpy and Popey. Well, well, actually, Popey hasn't been on the Ubuntu podcast for a couple of weeks, but Laura has been back. So go check it out. It's, it's a good show. Okay, just a couple of other community news items before we wrap up. Uh, Alex, you have some good news, and it's regarding one of your projects that we don't talk about too often, but we probably should, which is Linux Server IO. I love it. I use many of your containers here uh, at Jupyter Broadcasting. We all do. And uh, the Linux Server IO group has joined Open Collective, which, Alex, I... If my understanding is correct, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's it's like Patreon, but for infrastructure projects that's a little more open. Yeah, that's that's right. We've been searching for a long time for a sane way to deal with donations, uh, given that we have team members located across the globe. Um, we looked at registering as a charity in England and as a charitable organization here in Australia and all sorts of places. And it, to be honest, we were getting bogged down in red tape uh, everywhere we turned, and... Um, Open Collective allows us to take donations via a Patreon type model and uh, it allows people who want to donate to give us as much or as little as they want in a recurring monthly fashion if they would like to. Um, but most importantly for us, it's a very low overhead to manage. They, they handle all the taxes and everything else. So yeah, it just means the project is going to be a lot more sustainable moving forward. Why Open Collective? And I, I'm asking in like the uh, sort of, will other will other open source infrastructure projects maybe choose something like this? What was it about Open Collective versus Patreon or, you know, setting up your own white label subscriber payment system? They are open source themselves. So if you see something as part of their platform that you don't like, you can improve it. Ah, very good. Well, we will have a link in the show notes if you'd like to support uh, Linux Server IO. Take a look at some of the stuff they've put together. It has made automating tasks here at Jupyter Broadcasting a breeze. But not only that, one of the more fun projects I've probably worked on in the last six months. It's been it's been really enjoyable, and uh, it's it's one of those things where like there's there's complicated topics that you need to learn. Maybe it's containers or or whatever it might be. Um, it's a great way. It's a great way to learn those things. It's yeah, that's a nice, safe, easy to replicate environment. For those that don't know, we we make and ship a bunch of uh, community software packaged in Docker containers. Yeah. Now, a couple of months ago, we covered that Anagros was shutting down and that Endeavor OS was a community project that was launching to sort of fill that gap. I was kind of skeptical as as a diehard Antegros user. I didn't want to see a project that I loved uh, have something iterative taken and then sort of be not as good. However, I gave it a go this last weekend because they had their first release. Mm. I, I felt I got to give it a fair shot. Um, so what I, the, the role here is like a, like a sort of minimal, nice, gooey pre-set up on top of Arch and, and a little bit more? Is that, is that what we're aiming for? But unlike Antergos, it's a slightly modified installer, and there's only one desktop, Wes. There's only one desktop. Oh. And it's an interesting choice. That's wise. It is, because it's focus, right? Um, I gave it a go. I was very surprised. I, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. However, I, um, I happen to know the editor for uh, Choose Linux, and I happen to have uh, some sway there. So I got a clip from Choose Linux, which will come out, I think, tomorrow. It depends on where you're li- but it's very soon. It's uh, ChooseLinux.show slash, it's going to be, I think, episode 14. So ChooseLinux.show slash 14. But they're going to they're gonna do a full review. Ooh. And I got a little clip. It wasn't long ago. I think it was maybe a month or so ago. Antagos announced that they were shutting down. And Antigos is the easy way to install Arch, essentially, with some value add as well, to be fair. And 
around the time of the announcement, shortly afterwards, a group of people said, hey, we want to continue it, and we're going to call it Endeavor OS. And I was skeptical, I must say, that it was going to actually happen. But about a week ago, they released their first stable release, so I thought we'd better check that out, especially as it's got XFCE. And I must say, I was quite impressed with it. But L, you had some problems, right? Okay, so I will just be straight honest and say I have never used Arch before. So I was going into trying this completely new. And, you know, I always say it's okay to be new. So I thought, why not just jump in? Don't do it in a VM. Don't do it on a backup machine. Just kick to it and use it. Now, I'll tell you what surprises me about that distro hopper segment is we came up with that as kind of a joke. I, I, th- I thought initially I might do it on YouTube. And then I would just do a screen cap with voiceover. And that's how I would do video again. And then we were kind of joking, like, well, what if you guys just hit, like, a random button and tried out distros? And I didn't, you know, like, you know Joe, right? I mean, oh yeah, everybody loves Joe. That's a fact, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, <clears throat> Joe's... Joe's not a big change guy. He's not a big change guy. So when 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 we said to Joe, "Hey, what about like just like hitting a random button and uh, picking a distro and then having to review it?" I didn't think that was going to work. Turns out it's been pretty great. So they have this distro opera segment where not only are they randomly picking distros that happens in the show, but they're also doing some intentional reviews, some deep dives. It's been really good. So Drew and L are on that show with Joe. Choose Linux show. I like this distro hopper segment. It's fun, isn't it? Yeah, but one of the things I used to love about Linux Luddites, which is the podcast that Joe created when he first made his foray into Linux podcasting about five years ago, one of their segments was, I think it was called Over a Pint, and they did the same sort of thing. They would pick a distro at random, and then the following episode, they would sort of give their first impressions. And I used to love that segment because at the time I was bootstrapping Ubuntu Mate and I would get all <laughs> of these little insights about what was good or bad about all of these other distributions. And it was really great, great research material that I didn't have to go off and research for myself. So I'm glad to sort of see the return of of that segment. I, I really enjoy it. Well said. And the thing that I find super fun about it is you've got a bunch of different perspectives. So Elk comes from a very new to the desktop perspective. She comes from a server side trying the desktop for the first time. Drew comes at it from a very curious standpoint. He's really just curious about everything. And Joe comes at it from like a well-seasoned, I've been I've been running the desktop for well a decade. Well-seasoned, I like that. Let me tell you how, yeah, let me tell you how it really is kind of attitude. And the three of them combine to make a really solid analysis about a distro or a desktop. And, uh, and they managed to pack it on to like 30 minutes. It's been really cool. So anyways, I walked away from Endeavor OS. My short review, my quick little walk away thing would be they did something new. Early days, but it's it's not derivative. It truly felt like something new. What have they done that's new exactly? First of all, it's not just a straight ripoff of Antericros. It's a slightly modified installer. Um, some move, some progress has been made on the installer. Uh, and then it's a fully custom single desktop where they've made some choices about the applications that are different than the choices the Antigros folks made. It's The desktop environment mm-hmm. is based on XFCE. They've switched out uh, VLC for, oh, I'm blanking on it, but it's sort of an XFCE-focused GStreamer front-end. Parole. I think that's it. Yeah, I think that's it. So they've done some, they've made some swaps there, uh, and it feels like a unique product. It doesn't feel like Antergros next release. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. So it is, it's not really the continuation of Antergos, then it is, it is a different project with a different agenda. That's my sense. Uh, they cover it more in Choose Linux, but there will be other desktop options and other install options that are in, in the works. Uh, but so that's coming. Uh, okay. That yeah. I was going to say, because that was kind of, the thing with Antergos, right? I think Antergos had a different name to start with. It was, yes. was it Synarch originally? And it was just Cinnamon on Arch, and that was the only desktop option. Mm. And then yeah. it got renamed, and then they added all of the different desktop options to the installer. History is repeating itself. It sort of is, but it does make sense. You know, you do want to focus a bit initially. You want to limit your problem domain. Get it right. Yeah. I, if it were me, I would... I would advise you pick your desktop environment and you stick to that one desktop environment and you just execute really well on that one thing. As soon as you become a Linux Mint where you're looking at two different distribution bases and four different desktops, you're spreading yourself too thin and you can be good at everything but not great at anything. 
I do think my my future like need a quick Arch install. Just want to try something out on Arch. Go to Distro. Will be Endeavor OS. Is that right? Okay, because that was honestly that was probably the thing I used Integros the most for as well. So why Endeavor and not Manjaro? Given at the moment that Manjaro's default desktop environment is also XFCE, and they've been doing this a lot longer, so I'm guessing there's probably more refinement there. I agree. I think if you wanted a full desktop that you were going to use long term at this point, it would probably be Manjaro if you wanted something that was Arch based and didn't want to use Arch. Chris likes the shiny mountain. That's what it is. I know that. I'm just kind of being devil's advocate because we've got, you know, a new distro on the block. There's some heritage or a reason for its being, which is, you know, the discontinuation of Antergos. And then there's some real similarities with Manjaro, which is also an arch derivative. So what Antergos gave me that Manjaro doesn't really satisfy is damn near vanilla arch. And uh, I would say mm-hmm. Endeavor OS is even slightly closer. I, I could be wrong. I didn't do a scientific calculation. But by the quick <laughs> count that I did, six packages came from their own repo. Uh, and like two of them were like their, their GPG key package and things like that to make the, make the repo possible. Uh, so it's very mild modifications from upstream Arch. It would take you 20 minutes at most to just make it an upstream Arch box. And that's what I'm looking for is I'm looking for a shortcut to just get a full graphical desktop environment with a web browser and a media player and some codecs. A bootstrap. Yeah. Um, On top of Arch. Because if I'm installing Arch these days, it's because I need Arch to do a task. I'm not I'm not necessarily installing it to use for six months to five years. And if I was, maybe I would consider Manjaro at this point. Um, but for me, I, I'm right now, I'm, I'm sticking to Fedora and Ubuntu for the desktop. But that does seem like a good Arch candidate. And I think I'm going to check back in and maybe every other release or so. It's looking pretty good. And I got to say, I love Pac-Man. I know, right? It's, uh, always a, it's always a dream. Not just Pac-Man, but the AUR. That source is really hard to get rid of once you've tasted it. Thankfully, there's this project called Linux Server I.O. that makes software much more available on just about any distribution I choose. So I haven't had that problem for a while. All right. Well, let's move on now. We have, uh, we have a few things to get into. Number one is the housekeeping. Just a really quick one here. Uh, this is kind of a great study group that's kicking off. It's like the next generation of the study oh groups boy. we've been doing for a while. Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for times, dates, and information. Highlights. It's passing the AWS Cloud Practitioner Exam. This is a free online study group that uh, we're getting more people at Linux Academy involved in to give, essentially training away for free. I don't know how... What's the downside here? Just take advantage of why they're letting us do this. And uh, (laughs) learn some things. (laughs) How long will you let us do this? They can't take it away again, so you're set. (laughs) Once it's on the internet, it's out there. (laughs) But uh, if you want to ask questions or uh, get information... Meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Once you set L on a task, man, she is like... Watch out. I know. She's going to get it done. She's just taking this to the whole next level. They're going to get even better. So meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting for that and more. Speaking of AWS, by the way, L has also released a whole bunch of more AWS content for free as well as additional courses. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. That's something that she and I do now. They should never have given her the key. because Really she's just, just her. That's all the best stuff. I know. I'm like, Elle asked me, she's like, what do you think about this, this, and that? I'm like, well, L, just use your best and just do it whatever you want. Like, and you're going to do it right. Just do it. And like, it hasn't gone wrong yet. So check that out. We have links to all that stuff in the show notes as well as a link to the Friday stream. May there only be a limited number of Friday streams <gasps> left? Could there be a very special Friday stream where the entire crew is in studio? All of these questions and more will be answered. I've got to know. At FridayStream.com. The latest episode, FridayStream.com slash 10, Young and the Reckless, was our first stories about the ways we trashed our early vehicles. <laughs> really, that's what it came down to. <laughs> you know, I was I was uh, on, on a trip when I was listening to the Friday stream live, of course, because that's the way to that's the way to do it, it if you true. can. Yeah, yeah. I saw both of my first cars, the first one I wrecked, and then the second second car I used after that. So <sighs> it's a great episode. Did you hear about that? Did you hear my transmission story? Oh man. Woo. I know. Woo. I know. I know. That was crazy. Anyways, the Friday stream is great. It may it may be a limited product. I don't know. Who knows? People don't know. If somebody may know. But who could that be? Who could that be? <laughs> Check it out, fridaystream.com. And uh, there's much more. We have links in the show notes 
for everything I've been uh, yammering on about, including all of the news stories and everything else we're about to talk about at linuxunplugged.com slash 311. All right, Thomas, thank you for uh, waiting through all that. Appreciate it. Oh, of course. So, Thomas, um, I guess you, you're not new to the Texas Linux Fest scene or that uh, whole Linux scene at all since uh, you've been in the biz since about 1993, if I recall correct. Correct, correct. Yeah, I've presented at Texas Linux Fest numerous times over the year. Uh, over the years, uh, my daughters have volunteered with TXLF. So yeah, I've I've spent a lot of time with and absolutely love the folks who who organize Texas Linux Fest. I think one of the things that really resonated about uh, your talk is that you and I have had a very similar uh, timeline in IT. You started a bit before I did. Um, um, because when I started, Turbo Linux was no longer a thing. It was it was like it was on the decline. But when you started, <laughs> you became Turbo Linux certified instructor number zero zero one. I don't even yeah. know if many people listening have even heard of Turbo Linux before. So it's really big in Japan. So. <laughs> <laughs> And and actually, this is one of the few t- the few times where I can say that with a perfectly straight face. Turbo Linux actually has done very well in APAC. So, but yeah, back in the day, Turbo Linux was one of numerous uh, distros uh, out there. And at the time, I owned a small IT consultancy, and we got uh, engaged because I had written a whole bunch of Red Hat Linux training courses. Uh, and we got engaged by Turbo Linux to develop a Turbo Linux certification course. And this next question is in the context of the overall uh, uh, direction of the jobs market. I'm curious, how did you go from 14 years at Red Hat to, which when I think of Red Hat, especially the time you were at Red Hat, I think very much of on-premises installations and things like that. How did you go from that career trajectory for 14 years into Amazon, which to me is... It seems like a pretty big pivot for somebody in your career trajectory. You were very, you seem like you're very much on premises, building on on premises data centers, systems out, supporting those clients, running an independent contracting company. Then you go work for Red Hat. It sort of extends that career trajectory. Then all of a sudden you get to Amazon, and it seems like a bit of a 180 to me. Well, I, I don't think it's a 180. I think that it's a pretty natural progression, honestly, because look at the look at the evolution of, of cloud, right? For a long time, people were saying it's cloud when it was really just virtualized hosting. Yeah, you're, you're on-premises set up, uh, but up on somebody else's infrastructure. Lift and shift, you know, we'll do your mess for less kind of things. Um, so, you know, I spent, I spent a fair amount of time helping customers do things like that. Uh, but then as, as cloud native applications and application services started taking off and as storage changed and as, you know, networking, uh, sort of evolved and became more complex in cloud computing environments at their core, all of the services that you see most of the cloud providers out there offering are built on Linux. And so. For me, it wasn't a 180. It was a fairly natural progression. It was realizing that, you know, everybody seems to be taking a cloud first, uh, attitude or, or strategy. And a lot of these organizations, a lot of big enterprises are taking a, a containerized first in the cloud and, you know, not even your mess for less dump what we're doing out into the cloud, but let's really, really architect our applications to take advantage of cloud native services, which are all based on Linux. So that's what I decided to chase. Makes sense to me. Uh, the thing you said in the keynote that, <laughs> well, you really demonstrated it actually with job searches, but essentially the punchline is the Linux sysadmin could be going the way of the Unix sysadmin. Mm-hmm. Not that it's going to be obliterated completely, but it's going to become a niche. And when you do a job search in a popular area, you're down in the Austin area right now, mm-hmm. you do a job search down there for a Linux admin, you get X amount of results, you, get a, you, do, a, you do a search for cloud architect or cloud engineer, and you get almost four or five X, maybe even more results. Right. What's at the core of that though is Linux, right? So it's not, it's not that we are left out of this transition. It's just about maybe adapting to the times. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that it's really, really natural, especially if you've been doing this for a long time to go, well, I know Linux, I know the data center, I know, you know, IP tables and networking and subnet masking and storage. And, you know, I'm, I, I want to do that in the data center. It's really 
easy to get caught up and scared of change. But when you look at the infrastructure that is running every cloud provider out there, it's all open source, it's all Linux, it's all things you're already used to. And uh, and so I don't think that that folks should look at it as, oh my gosh, this is going to be hard. I think that folks should look at it as, wow, I've already got a head start on a lot of other folks because I understand the underlying technologies. Yeah, that is, I think, a very good way to look at it. And it's the reality of the situation. You're well positioned. I want to just take a tangent for a moment and talk about something that we never talk about on the show, and that's Amazon Linux. Mm -hmm. Correct me where I'm wrong, but my understanding is that it is at least initially based on a version of RHEL, um, but that's about the extent of my understanding. Is that correct? So we have a lot of commonality with, say, CentOS or Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Um, but uh, we, what we did when we were developing, especially Amazon Linux 2, which is the latest version that's out there, is we wanted to have a distro that, that was familiar and comfortable to enterprise users. So, yes, it does share a common heritage with, with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. It's uh, similar to CentOS. But we recompiled the GCC tool chain, put a newer version of glibc, newer version of the kernel, optimized and tuned it for virtualized environments. So while it is a similar environment and gives you a similar experience uh, to other RPM-based distros, it is really purpose-built for cloud computing. So it's not necessarily pegged to a specific version nope. of CentOS or REL? Okay. Nope, nope. Hmm. I'm kind of in this context, what are your thoughts on the universal base image that Red Hat's working on as part of RHEL 8? Hmm. So UBI, I, I saw a lot of the development that worked on that, that went on around UBI when I was still at Red Hat. UBI is interesting. It is designed for containerized environments. It is designed to be used as a container. It's not a full distro. Could run on top of Amazon Linux, too. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, Red Hat's goal is to make it freely available, zero zero cost. Um, they want everyone to adopt UBI for all of their containerized workloads, and I think that that is a noble uh, noble cause. I think that there are a lot of organizations which have done analysis of container runtimes and found that smaller is better. And UBI being a universal base image tries to be all things to all people. And so, you know, in the environments where you've got to spin up thousands or tens of thousands of containers, you're probably going to want to look real hard at what the performance impact is for having a larger container. That is not a, a slam or a dig at all. There are some cases where UBI is absolutely going to make, make sense, but there are also going to be cases where it doesn't. Yeah, I think that's a fair observation. Um, and I, I'm everything you say, I consider your personal opinion doesn't rec reflect, reflect Amazon or anything right. like that. So this is all, this is all just what, what <laughs> Thomas thinks. Um, and in that kind of vein, I'm, I'm, I, when I look at Amazon Linux 2 and uh, how it's used at such a fantastic scale, and I, I take that out over the next five to ten years and I multiply that across uh, Am, uh, Azure and uh, Google Cloud, and I think uh, not a single one of those is a Red Hat subscription. And I wonder if this plays a bit into IBM's acquisition or perhaps why Red Hat may have been willing to sell to to IBM. Again, your personal opinion, but do you think there is a a sort of um, a market momentum that may have been on their minds during this acquisition? Wow, that's that's a little difficult to answer because I was inside of the organization during the during the acquisition process. Um, I will say that you can look anywhere in the industry. You can look at AWS, you can look at Azure, you can look at GCE, you can look at, you know, the smaller ones like Rackspace or uh, uh, any one of the organizations out there. They're all running a whole lot of unpaid Linux. They're, they're making a whole lot of unpaid Linux available to their customers. And their customers are all saying, meh, it's good enough. Mm. You know, if you look at the, the sort of paradigm shift that we're seeing where folks are saying, eh, I'm going to do things as, you know, as 
cattle, not pets, or even not necessarily as cattle, but, you know, as, as containerization so that if something breaks, if something didn't work, I throw it away. I spin a new one up. I don't care. I don't care about the underlying operating system. I don't care about the technology any in as much as like it has to be distro X or distro Y. So I think that the writing is on the wall for expensive, you know, expensive, big um, um, distributions. And uh, I think that everybody recognizes that open source has become commoditized. Linux has become commoditized. And so, you know, yeah, I think that that very well may have been one of the driving forces, uh, you know, that stream, that well is going dry. Maybe it's time to, to cash out. I don't know. <laughs> uh, great point. And um, is in your talk, you talk about the distro wars as if, as if they're over. Is this kind of why? Is this, is this new reality? Why, when you talk about the distro wars in your keynote, you talk about them in a past tense and you talk about the damage they did, not that they're doing. Um, I think that there's still some of that mentality because you've always got the fanboys, right? And and to be clear, I was a fanboy for a long time. I still I still fanboy a little bit. There are some distros that I really love. I love Fedora. Um, but but I think that yes, when you had in the early days, you had these distros that were doing fairly different things around the Linux kernel, um, and and you couldn't install the same piece of software across two different distros without totally recompiling into you know that was bad, that was harmful. It was exactly the same thing that we saw during the Unix wars. That oh you know it wouldn't work on this sysv versus this BSD init style or you know HPUX had a different kernel and you know you had to recompile stuff versus Sun OS, you know, all that craziness, um, different administration tools, different interfaces. Um, I think that the distro wars were, were very harmful. I don't think we're seeing that as much today. I think we're seeing a lot more work towards interoperability between distros with things like Flatpak and so on that, uh, that I, I think it's fantastic. I think it's wonderful, man. Use the distro that you like. And and still be able to access the software that you need to get your job done. I mean, no doubt about it, right? I mean, looking back at uh, since 1993 compared to today, it is so much easier to run the distro that you want to run. Oh yeah, I mean, you you remember as well as I do, and and I talked about it. I alluded to it in the uh, in, in the keynote. Man, you know, I remember fighting for literally about a week to get my first distro installed. And then I finally got it installed and it booted up and there was a little flashing login cursor. And I was like, ah, what do I do now? <laughs> uh, Thomas, when you brought up, when you brought up wind modems, I actually <laughs> felt physical pain. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I felt physical pain. Oh God. It was so bad. Yep. It was so bad. It was so bad. Well, um, any kind of advice or, um, any kind of quote unquote mentorship that you would give to somebody who's looking to get into the Linux market today, what are some of the fundamentals that they probably need to start thinking about to be successful in the job market? Not to put you on the spot, but... No, no, no. That's that's actually a really good question. And, and I will say what you heard me say before. Install Linux on your primary machine, and it's going to be scary, and you're going to not know how to do stuff, and it's going to freak you out, and you're going to be missing you know, applications in the whatever your OS of choice is, Windows or Mac OS or whatever, and it's going to suck for the first couple of weeks. But if you immerse yourself, if you force yourself to really use it every single day... Learn about how networking works. Learn about what subnetting is. Understand why you always have a 192.168 address when you're at home. Like just that sort of basic blocking and tackling, getting it up and running, getting users installed, configuring services. If you do those things and you can speak intelligently about them when you go to interview – you're going to have a huge leg up over somebody who's just kind of the paper tiger that, you know, oh, I read a book or I ran through a, you know, some online cheesy CBT that didn't really make me go through and perform tasks. Can I just add to that? Sure. Absolutely. So the first thing I was going to say is I was, I listened to your question and the first thing I thought was really learn networking. So I'm glad that you hit that point because I think that's super important. And, you know, people often think about, oh, I know how to get around, you know, the Linux file system and install packages and configure packages, but you really need to be an expert 
at the network level. And then if you want to be an attractive candidate to employers and you want to be working in the data center, then it doesn't matter which technology you choose to learn, but learn how to orchestrate Linux at scale. So it doesn't matter whether it's Puppet or Chef or Ansible or Juju or Maz or whatever, learn one of those understand why it's important and understand how you scale Linux horizontally and vertically. And if you're able to nail that and networking, you're, you've got a job for life. I completely agree. Great tips. That is, that is one of those things that even today I still appreciate having some network fundamentals. We were, Wes and I were on a call on Monday discussing relays and, and international data transfer and, and the, the hops between. And it, it really, really helps to have a, a basic yeah, understanding. We live in a distributed stuff. world, right? And it's all connected by networks. I found an incredible value in learning things like Ansible, as Martin just said. But uh, Docker as well was another life-changing technology for me. Um, but having a project, uh, a real-world problem that I can solve at home with these things is... Yes. That means I can go into an interview and speak authoritatively on a topic and say, yes, I've done X, Y, and Z on my home lab. Here's how I can add value to your business. And just being able to go in there and, and say those things with some authority is completely un- overlooked. When, when people are choosing one solution over another, whether it's a Synology NAS versus building your own thing, that never factors into the equation. And I absolutely think it should for people. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you're, you're dead right. And the, the number of times that I have messed around with a personal interest project at home where I've had to learn, let's say, how Ceph works, for example, or ZFS, and then have been able to use that knowledge and apply it uh, in the workplace, I can't count the number of times I've done that. So, you know, back to the don't just run it on your desktop PC, set up it can be something as simple as a NUC with uh, disks plugged in via USB 3. You know, it doesn't need to be expensive or fancy, but create yourself a lab that you can bring up and solve problems on. It's better if they're problems that persist, you know, you like your home media server or, you know, something like that. And really experiment with things. You know, don't be afraid of experimenting with a new file system paradigm. It's something that Alex and I were talking about in the Telegram this week. You know, just experiment and use these things. My daughter and I just bought five of the new Raspberry Pi 4Bs. And you stack those bad boys up into one of the little, you know, stackable cases. And all of a sudden for, you know, a couple hundred bucks, the, the cost of one NUC that's not even, you know, super, super built out, you've got multiple machines. So you can do things like Docker, or you can do things like Kubernetes. Um, you know, it's, it's, you can do lab type of stuff at home for a heck of a lot cheaper than back in the day when we were buying, you know, old Optiplexes and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, it, and if you don't want to get into, um, well, it's not so exotic, but if you don't want to get into the exotic world of ARM, you know, there's even boards like the Atomic Pine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which are x86 boards, and they're only like 60 bucks, and they're quite pokey, and you can do a lot with them. So there's plenty of ways to access sort of cheap hardware to build out your own modest lab environments to you know experiment on top tip from me if you want to find a, a good compendium of different cpus and motherboards and stuff like that is serverbuild.net uh, there's some great information on that website and i just built this week a pfsense router around 150 dollars with an i5 3470 in it uh, four gigs of ram and all that kind of stuff so you know it is incredible what you can build for that 150 kind of price point these days. The Raspberry Pi thing that that the reason why that's such a fun tip is it's it's way more entertaining, fun, and educational than setting up a bunch of VMs. VMs is a good skill to have too, but it's so cool to 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 physically set up a couple of Pies and then connect into them and manipulate them. I liked Wimpy's point too. You know, make something you're gonna you're actually gonna rely on because that's a key part to a lot of this stuff. Is you're gonna have to support it and you're gonna have to figure out 
what happens when some, you upgrade and it goes wrong, yep. right? And the family can't watch movies on your Plex server anymore. It, it's motivating. Let me put it that way, Wes. <laughs> That's <laughs> very real, there's, there's nothing like learning how to do raid recovery if you pull a disc out of your home <laughs> server, you know, your Plex on a Saturday morning. You know, just do that and then learn how to recover that situation. That will that'll focus your attention. Very true. Very, very true. I'll throw one more thing out. Um, when I'm hiring, when I'm looking at a candidate, uh, I will always do a Google search on their name. And so I would say that if you are trying to break into the industry, get on mailing lists, get on, you know, uh, web boards, get on whatever is appropriate for what your interests are and contribute. Even if you're not contributing code, I mean, just answer questions um, or help folks, you know, help, help new folks. Uh, you may not have the answer, but you know, Hey, did you consider blah, 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 blah. If I, as a hiring manager, see that and see that you're out there trying to do good and trying to help the community, that gives you massive brownie points in my eyes. Yeah, as a hiring manager, I totally endorse that. That might be one of the single best tips given out on the show, because that is something that we use when we are researching people that we're talking about on the show. And that's a way we measure a certain amount of impact, too. And I can absolutely see how that would correlate to hiring. I think that is a really good tip. So, Thomas, I've got two last questions for you. Sure. Uh, number one is a long timer. What are you doing today on your Linux desktop that just... Just like you, if you, if you told 10 year, if you just went back in time 10 years and told yourself you could do this, it would blow your mind. Oh, that's, that's easy. I mean, it's, let's ignore containerization because this is sort of, you know, the next step. But the fact that I have a machine at my desk with 32 gigs of memory in it, and I can spin up virtual machines in, you know, 10 minutes or not even that two minutes um, and, and set up complex networked environments, then run Kubernetes on top of it to do my container orchestration. You know, the fact that I can do all of that on one machine and that one machine, by the way, has three monitors attached to it 10 years ago. That was science fiction. You are making me smile so much right now. <laughs> a man after my own heart because I am geeking out so hardcore with PCI pass-through and virtualization right yep. now. I, I can't believe the performance I'm getting. I'm sitting at a virtual machine with a keyboard, a mouse, and a, and a screen, and it feels like I'm at bare metal hardware. It's just... Oh, yeah. Virtualization has come so far. It has the future. It's now. <laughs> that, that is such a remarkable... That is such a remarkable change. Great, great answer. Number two... Um, how would you feel about us uh, doing a once over on your keynote, like doing some audio filtering and things like that and releasing it somewhere for people to be able to listen to? I don't know if it's ever been public, but I'm just thinking after our talk, that would, that keynote would be some really good context for this conversation. I'd love to post it somewhere. How do you feel about that? I, I would be honored. That would be fantastic. Thank you so much. I will right, we'll figure that out. I don't know exactly how we'll do that, but we'll do a follow up at some point, and then I'll, I'll let you know whatever we figure out. Because <laughs> I'm just I just came up with that on the spot, but I think it'd be really good because it was such a great keynote, and you made some great points about diversity and different types of diversity, including neurological diversity, that uh, really resonated with me, and that's in the keynote as well. We did talk about that in episode 304. So if you do want some additional context before we get that whole thing posted, go check out LinuxUnplugged.com/slash 304 where we have all that. Thomas, we'll have links to uh, your profile and whatnot in our show notes. Is there anywhere else you want to send people? Um, <laughs> AWS.Amazon.com. Got to throw that out Atta there. <laughs> Attaboy. <laughs> Good man. Got it. You got to do it. Uh, yeah, it's if great. If you've never heard of AWS. Yeah. And make sure you Yeah. <laughs> There's this little no, company yeah. that's doing some something to this cloud thing. I don't know if it's ever going to be big, but. I don't know that a book company is ever going to succeed at that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Let me tell you, uh, the Seattle area could tell you differently. We have uh, we have some uh, glass balls downtown that uh, say otherwise. Big, really big glass balls downtown. Man, the first time I saw those, those uh, you know, because I flew up for, for some of my new hire, the first time I saw that was like, wow. It looks like something from Star Trek. Mm -hmm. I bet you there will be a sci-fi episode at some point that films outside those things. They're super cool. Mm. And they're, uh, if you search the internet right now, you'll find Jeff Bezos thanking uh, the crew for Amazon Prime Day uh, up on the glass balls. It's a pretty great picture. So yeah, But you'll have, that's not in the show notes. That's something for you to do at home. But we Bezos balls. 
we do have in the show notes is a link to Croc, which is looking to supplant my beloved wormhole. Did you find this? Yeah, yeah. Well, someone found it anyway. Mm. And I, Drew tried it out with me. He was good enough. He agreed. It's like magic wormhole is great. I think I think Croc has a slight edge. It's encrypted. It lets you send multiple files, and it's resumable. Okay, hang on. Rewind. What's this thing called? Because I love wormholes. If there's something better out there, I need to know about this. Right? It's called Croc, C-R-O-C. It's on GitHub. We'll have a link in the show notes. And it's all the things we love about wormhole. It will do a proxy connection, which you can self-host, or that project offers one. Uh, it brings in multiple files and resuming, though, which Magic Wormhole currently does not. Really quick recap for those of you that don't know. These are tools that make it crazy simple to transfer all kinds of large or small files between machines anywhere in the world. They will traverse NAT. They will manage your port forwarding, they, a.k.a. they don't require it. Um, it's a really, really handy way to, say, exchange large working files between groups and not have to rely on, like, a cloud service. Because once the transfer is set up, you're sending directly between machines. And the thing that Crocs bring into the party is Windows and Mac support, which is nice, encryption, multiple files, and resuming. Yeah, and it's just a, it's just a go binary, too. So you can just download the tar file. Oh, and, yeah, quit it. Super easy to package up or run wherever you want. <sighs> I really love Magic Wormhole, so this does hurt. Because one of the cool things that it does, and I have not tried Croc, but one of the things Magic Wormhole does is you say wormhole send, and then you give it the file name, and then it, it generates a human-readable code that's yep, in exactly three segments. Oh, it is? Yep. Oh, that's really it nice. It lists Magic Wormhole, uh, in fairness here, as one of the inspi- inspirations okay. for the project. So there's a lot you know, there's a lot of tools here, and I don't know that it's really necessarily better than you know what you're doing unless you well, need one of the features resuming nice. resume is because we're doing we're moving like 30 gigs i will certainly take a look at this yeah. what i would say is wormhole can transfer multiple files as well you just point wormhole at a directory and right. then everything in that directory gets transferred oh, nice fair enough yes that is true oh look at this they have a container ready for it to go of i also like that the relay is easy to run like you don't have to run anything separately it's you just it's another flag to the binary that you have so we could we could put that relay on our own system. Very easily. And there's a container for it, yeah. So. Yeah. Dang it, this is happening, isn't it? I can already feel this has happened. Like, you and Drew have decided, and now it's just time for old man Chris to get on board. <laughs> Dang it. That's cool. I love Magic Wormhole. I'll still use it with, with Wimpy. Yeah, we're not going to uninstall it. <laughs> no, what's nice about Magic Wormhole is it's in most repositories. You just didn't That's know about nice, it. That's nice, yes. I love those kinds of apps. They've been in the repo the entire time. And it's in PIP, too. So if you already have Python, you're good to go. Yeah, of course. Of course. All right. Right. Well, we'll have links to that and more in the show notes, linuxunplugged.com. Why don't you join us live next week? Did you know we do this on a Tuesday? Oh, it's way more fun live. It is. There's Well, there's like more show. Extra show. Yeah. We have a pre and post show in the recording, but that's not... No, that's just a little teaser. Spoiler alert. That's Ooh. not the whole thing. <laughs> it's not. It's not the whole thing. We never really said that, yeah. but it's true. There's only one way to really find out, though. JBLive.tv. We have it converted to your local time at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar, as well as many other fine shows posted over there. Go check out the links to the guests and as well as the hosts at linuxunplugged.com. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you back here next Tuesday. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was and a lot of fun. Thank you for doing the recording, too. So before you stop recording or before you go, we just have one duty left, and that is we must select a title for this episode. It is the hardest aspect of the show. So uh, if you go over to jbtitles.com. That's why we make you help us. Yeah. yeah if you go to jbtitles.com, <laughs> we have um, a vote. Oh, and then we've only gotten seven suggestions. Chat room. And several of them are from me. Oh, my goodness. So we have only a few choices to pick from.
Yeah, go help us out. I don't think I like any of these, so we may have to come up with our own. These, I expect more. 32 hours of outrage. (laughs) (laughs) That is good. That is good. I got to admit, that is really funny. Yeah, that is pretty good. I actually would click that, too. Um, (laughs) It's natural. You can't resist. Yeah, you can't. It's it's, it's instinct. Um, Can we come up with anything else? Wimpy, you haven't been here for a while. I feel like it'd be perfect (laughs) for you to just have a creative title idea. And Brent, where's your game today? I've just done it. What was it? I've got one in there. Yeah, yeah, Brent, we see it. I mean, it's not like we don't see it, Brent. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I I never said it was good. Podcasting in my pants, Wimpy. I don't don't think that's going to be it. I mean, I, I mean, I, the exclamation point really makes it. Yeah, I, uh, I do appreciate the visual, but th- imagine like all of the audience that has to have that visual whippy. That's just not something we want to do to them. <laughs> well, I, I think you're, you're, you've missed on your market research there. 